All right, let's get started. All the way in the back, Jack. Number one. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, each died blank. Spiritually. Yeah, each died spiritually. Good. Jaden, number three, please. Number three. Number three number two. Two, sorry. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve blank not ran from God, something they've never done before. Yep. Hid. Yep, they hid from God. H-I-D, they hid from God. Pepper, number three, please. Um, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, separated from an onward relationship with God. Yeah. Intimate. Intimate, yep. Intimate. All right, number four and five. Addison? Man is both a blank body and blank, physical and soul. Yep. What about they put down what? What What alternative answer do you have? It's Lucas put down spirit. Remember put spiritual soul. You covering your bases with that answer? Okay. Yeah, Preston, what do you got? Jaden put down biological. Biological body is fine. Yep. She put spiritual. Body, spiritual body? No, just spiritual. Both a biological body and a spiritual? And spiritual? Okay. Yeah. As long as you're understanding soul, spirit, something that distinguishes it from the biological. Okay? Next. Next. According to Matthew 10, 28, a man has both a four-letter four letter word in your body. Soul. Soul. Okay. And a seven. There's both a blank aspect to man and a spiritual blank. Mm-hmm. What do you put? I can't read seven. Whose paper do you have? What, what word do you have? Yeah, there's a physical aspect to man and a spiritual aspect. Yes, Jack. The paper says there's a, both a physical aspect to man and a spiritual body. Is that correct or not? No, there's not a spiritual body. I don't know what spiritual body. The body is the biological or the physical aspect. Yep. I wanted you to see the parallel structure right there. I put the blank in front of aspect and then spiritual to see the correlation. So I expected you to use aspect both. So there's a spiritual aspect and there's a physical aspect. Preston. Jaden has physical and there's seven and eight aspect. Perfect. Jack, next. The God who orchestrates the physical birth of humans is the one who gives them a spiritual blank. This paper says body. No. no Birth. The answer is right in the in it's right there. In the question. Gives them a spiritual birth. Would a rebirth work? I'll accept rebirth. Sure. Yeah. But it's not necessary. The word re is not in front of it because they haven't had a spiritual birth. Re would imply that that this is the second. And this one says life. Gives them a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll accept that, but you can see. Students, look at the structures of the sentences. The answers are right in front of you. Do you see that? Physical what? Aspect. In, in that question. Oh, birth. Birth. 
So what would the parallel structure be to keep the continuity of the sentence? Spiritual birth. Yes. Do you know what I mean by the continuity of the sentence? What do I mean by the continuity? Continuous. Yes. So the parallel structure. Every sentence is constructed like that in this. Number 11. We're on 10. Oh, 10, yeah. True or false? All humans are born spiritually. True or false? True. 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 Number 11. Jason. What member of the triune God does the work of regeneration? Yeah, what member? God the Father? No. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, John chapter 3. Okay, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had loved us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were blank in trespasses, you are saved by grace. All right, number 12. What goes in the blank in the verse above that is contrasted with alive with Christ? Dead. Dead. Good. Hey, I have a question. So Landon didn't write in the blank for the question, he wrote in the blank for the verse. That's fine. Yep. Okay, 13. Jack. What are trespasses in the verse above, in the above verse? Okay. Sins? Yes, sins. 14. Anna put touching the fruit. Is that. That's wrong. Thank you. Jaden. Jesus told Nicodemus he must be blank and blank to see or enter the kingdom of God. Yep. Born again. Born again. Yep. Born again. 14, Lucas. That was 14. Yep. 15. Uh, regeneration is compared to to a spiritual circumcision of the blank, which isn't physical either. Heart. Heart. Anna, 16. Today, under the new covenant, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his death, burial, and resurrection of one's own sin is necessary to be blank. Born again. Born again. 17, Mr. Prophetstein. Yes, Does it count if they said spiritually alive? Sure. But what language is biblical and what language isn't biblical? Do we see the language of born again in the Bible? So use that biblical language. 17. Jesus said without this blank, one remains in the state of being spiritually dead. Resurrection. No. Jaden has rebirth. What? Jaden has rebirth. I'll accept rebirth for half credit. Jaden has regeneration. Regeneration is the correct word. It's in the top of the article. What about restoration? Restoration is clearly wrong. Okay, give me up. What? I didn't have the other How many points is what it's not No, right there. Pastor Sean, did you say resurrection is half? I said resurrection is half. Being born again is the same thing as being born from above. Above. That is correct. Above. So let's make them four points apiece and start from a total score of 100. Subtract, okay? Make them four points apiece, start with 100. Subtract. Yes, card. Okay, get them back to their owners so we can get into. 
the Proto-Evangelum. This is a new Okay, hey, open up to Genesis chapter 3, please. All right, Jack, pick it up with eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And by and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, let's stop right there. So our focus this morning is on verse 15. And let's pray. Lord God, I just ask that you help me to do a good job communicating um, all that's in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I will put a hostility between you and the woman. So he's still talking to who? The serpent. Yep, to the serpent. And then we have this really strange transition. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All right, what makes this verse unique, strange, full of mystery? What are some of the things that you think about when you hear right in the middle of this? All right, we got a rebuke for the serpent, consequences. We have a rebuke for the woman, consequences. We have a rebuke for the man, consequences. And then tucked in that is this strange little promise. And where does the strangeness start? Between your offspring and hers. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Because you're not expecting us to be talking about the offspring of who? Um, Satan. Of the serpent. Do we know it's Satan at this point? No. No, we don't. We know that we have this offspring of the serpent, and the serpent is going to do what? He's going to crawl on the crawl on the ground, eat dust. So are we envisioning a transition to some type of a snake-like being? Yeah. Yes. And are those snakes going to reproduce? Yeah. Would that be an offspring? Yes. Yes. Is there a general hostility between the offspring of a woman and the offspring of the serpent? Is there a general hostility? Yeah. Right, what does that look like? Snakes are dangerous. Yeah, we don't like snakes. Keep the kids away from the snakes. Is there a general hostility or enmity right now between humans and snakes? Now, are there some strange birds out there that have snakes in their house and all that? Yes, but they are the extreme. Do you have one in your house? He wants one. He's trying hard to get one. My yeah. cousin loves that kind of stuff. Right. Okay, so yes. But as a general rule, is it fair to say that there is a animus, a hostility between snakes and humans? Yes. Right. When I was growing up in the hills of West Virginia, if you saw a snake, unless it was a black snake, black snakes were good because they killed rice. I mean, uh, mice, not rice. <laughs> mice. So we let black snakes live. But if it was poisonous, my dad went and got the shotgun and we we're gonna shoot that snake. It wasn't gonna be allowed to stay on the property because snakes reproduce and you don't want venomous snakes reproducing. So first you said poisonous and then you just said venomous. If venomous, if it bites you, it's poisonous if you eat it. Excellent. Thank you for that excellent clarification. 
Yep, you're busting everybody's chops today. Yeah. Right? Lucas, me, no one's exempt. I'm sorry. This is your big sister, Preston. I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. We all feel you're paying for us. Right. All right. Uh, Snakes that bite <laughs> with that which is not good. Right? But what else is here? What else is here in this verse? Is it, in other words, is it merely just a layer of physical animosity between these strange things that creep on the ground that we don't like and the offspring of woman? Or is there something more? All right, if you didn't have the last half, if you didn't have, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. If you didn't have that sentence, what would you conclude? They'll just square each other. What would you conclude? Does it have a spiritual component or a mysterious component, or is it merely physical? If you did not have the second sentence, if if all you said is, if all it said was ending with their her offspring, and then he said to the woman, would there be anything more to talk about? I don't think so. But when you move the text to a he, do you see that? Mm -hmm. Offspring is gender what? Neutral. Neutral. In both cases. But suddenly the second sentence changes everything. Because now we went to masculine pronouns. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what's the most important thing for us to figure out right now in this second sentence? What do we call those words? Addison, you know everything. What do we call those words? Which word specifically? The he. What do we call, this is a pronoun, right? Mm -hmm. And what do we call this word right here that it's referring to? Masculine pronoun? Yeah, this is a masculine pronoun. But this pronoun represents something, doesn't it? Why do you use pronouns? Why do you use pronouns? Well, if you want to say something, if, you, if you're repeating yourself, like you're saying offspring, but then you just want to refer to the offspring again, you say he. Right, you're now using a pronoun to refer back to what? The offspring. Right, but what's the offspring in this sentence? What's the, the English word for this? called the antecedent. Come on, you guys have heard that word before. No? I hope so. We, no, Lucas? I think I've heard it, but I've never... <clears throat> the antecedent... The antecedent is the word that the pronoun is standing in place of. So we have to determine the antecedents. We want to rewrite this sentence. And when we rewrite this sentence, we're going to eliminate all pronouns. Right? We're going to eliminate all pronouns. So, the he. Let's just look. The he. Who is the he referring to? Are you sure it's the serpent? No, it's referring to You need to look at the verse. You need to look at the Bible verse. Who is the, the previous reference before the he? Her offspring? Yes, her offspring. 
He, help me out, he will bruise your what? Head. Lucas, are you looking at a different Bible verse? I didn't say anything. Oh, who was it? Pepper? I'm talking about the sentence that's on your page. Verse 15. What's it say? He will bruise your head. So now the most important thing for us to figure out at this point is who's the what? The he. Who's the he? And in the structure of the previous sentence, what's the closest antecedent? Yes. Yeah, but whose offspring? The woman's offspring. The woman's offspring. Right. The woman's offspring. Okay. So we know something about this offspring. Born of a woman, not a serpent. And what else do we know? Is this a female? No. So we know the what? The gender. The gender. This is a male. The antecedent for the he here is a person born from a woman of the masculine gender. Everyone tracking? Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, we need to figure out your head. How are we going to determine your head? Right, because the entire paragraph... Who's he talking to? Serpent. To the serpent. Verse 16 is where we have the transition of what word? To the woman. To the woman. Exactly. So we have this tripart division in this section. First to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. Everyone tracking? Okay. So this your is the serpent's what? The serpent's what? Offspring. Offspring, exactly. Offspring. Okay. So this is strange. So we have to think through this. All right. What's the next sentence? The CSB divides it up into two sentences. What's the ESB do? And you shall All right. Gives us the conjunction. And you. you Shall, shall bruise his heel. Alright, if we're positive that we have the antecedent and the structure of the first sentence, if it's not a sentence in your Bible, it's the first section of that one sentence. The CSB divides it into two sentences. So we have a conjunction. You, this he right here, is a male and you shall bruise his heel. If your head is the serpent's offspring, then his heel must be who? Yeah, must be of the woman's offspring. Meaning that this pronoun, you, is who? The serpent's offspring. Serpent. Okay. So, the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise the heel 
of the offspring of the woman. Do you see that? Yes or no? All right. This is really good news. Because who gets the head injury? The serpent does. At this point, who has great animosity towards the serpent? At this point, who has great animosity towards the serpent? Yes. I'm sure it's a venomous hatred. They're instantly aware of their nakedness. They're hiding from God. They're accountable to God for their sin. And now they've just gotten a severe rebuke. But within this giant rebuke is this amazing promise. And what is the promise? That the head of the serpent is going to get crushed. That the offspring of the serpent is going to get his head kicked in. Are we thinking vengeance? Are we thinking revenge? Are we thinking victory? Are we excited about the fact that he's going to have some consequences to him? Make this real. Okay? Which is why this passage of scripture is called good... Good what? News. It's good news. It's good news that the serpent gets his head kicked in. Now, in the process, somebody's going to get a heel injury. So does, does the person kicking the head in, does he get away with it unscathed? No. There's a degree of injury. So there are some things that we need to think about this. If we have the serpent having an offspring, then we definitely can conclude that we're talking about some degree of continuity. Now, we're not saying that that serpent lives forever, the actual physical serpent that was in the garden lives forever so that we know that behind the serpent is someone else. And Jaden, who is that? Who's behind the serpent? Who's that ancient serpent? Satan. Yes, it's the Satan. Where do we know this definitively from? What book of the Bible? Revelation. Yes, the book of Revelation. So go ahead and turn there. I think it's chapter 12. Okay, let's look at verse nine. Pepper, verse nine. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, so our continuity in the word offspring is found 
and the existence of Satan. The fact that he doesn't have a lifespan that ends. So we can move forward and we understand that the serpent in the text died, but the Satan, the ancient dragon, continues to live. Okay, so the offspring connection there gives him some continuity. So now we have to determine the woman's offspring. So there's no doubt that when Eve had a child, what did she probably think? That's right, in her lifetime. Imagine how disappointed she was when Cain murders, murders Abel. Abel's dead, and Cain is sentenced to live in exile. For her at this point, what's lost? Yeah. Until until she gives birth to Seth. And what is resurrected inside her soul? That hope. Hope. Exactly. That hope. Exactly. That hope. So now we have a son, the first the third son of Eve, according to what's recorded in scripture. And there were other sons, but the one that we're most concerned with is the one Seth. Now we get the answer to why we have so many genealogies in our Bible. Why we have so many genealogies in our Bible. Because of this what? This promise. This very promise right here. Now, what y'all are learning this morning is what 90% of the churches in America have no clue. In other words, if we walked into Sunday morning churches all over the city of Fayetteville and said, could you explain to me what the proto-evangelium is? You would just get giant stares of blank. I spent my entire life growing up in a church and never was taught this. Never heard it. Just wasn't part of the vocabulary. I spent 14 years in this church before I became the pastor and never heard it. It's just something that's not taught enough, unfortunately. So let's look at our first paragraph of our article. And uh, we'll get to the fifth one here in a little bit, but but we're not there yet, Jaden. Let's do the first one. Uh, Kyron, let's go ahead and read that first paragraph. The article is the regeneration one, right? No, the proto-evangelum one. Proto-evangelum one. Lucas, you don't have it with you? Not sure. Okay. Go. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of redemption, salvation, in the Bible. After Adam and Eve's disobedience, God cursed the serpent for his role in the deception and temptation of our first parents. The serpent will eat dust all the days of his life. Verse 14. Eat dust is figurative language for God's judgment against the serpent. Then God promises the serpent that her offspring, Eve, would strike, would strike, bruise his head. Promises and covenants like this are why the Bible is full of genealogies. Genealogies track descendants. In Genesis, one can trace Eve's descendants from her son Seth to Noah, to Abraham to Jacob, to his son Judah, and Judah's son Tamar, Perez. By way of Perez, right. So the entire book of Genesis takes us from Seth all the way to Perez. Perez's dad is Judah. 
And Judah is the fourth, the fourth son of of Jacob, also known as Israel. That's right, Israel. Very good. And Jacob's dad is Isaac. Right. And Isaac's dad is Abraham. And Abraham's dad is Terah. That's right. And then you have this series of generations that are just unnamed in the Bible. You have no narrative. You have no explanation, much at all about them, until you get to the son of Noah. And who is that? Shem. Shem. That's correct. And then we have a Noah right here. And then between chapters numbers four to where Noah, we meet Noah in six, we've got another genealogy with some names. With a little bit of clarity, not much at all there. So, why is this in your Bible, Jack? Why are all these names, why, is these, why are these genealogies in there? So you can track that Jesus actually comes from David and Abraham and Adam. Ultimately to the woman. Right. And this provides us incredible explanation as to why Noah was saved. Now you unpack that for me. I just gave you a lead-in. This provides for me incredible explanation as to why Noah was saved in an ark. Now you unpack that. Because if Noah he wasn't, wasn't saved, saved the there would not be offspring. Right. Of her. Could God start over with another Adam and Eve? Yes. Sure he could. But he told Eve what? Her offspring. Her offspring. And if he started over with a Eve 2.0, would that be her offspring? No, it wouldn't. So the very existence and maintaining of humanity is all because God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And because he made a promise to Eve, he's going to keep and fulfill that promise through these generations. And you see this incredible narrative take place after Noah, Shem, this whole thing. How many of you know what the incident is right here? What's the big incident after the tower pre-Terra Abraham? I mean, after the ark, I just gave it to you. The Tower of Babel. Yeah, thank you. The Tower of Babel. And Babel, what word is Babel? It's confusion. In which God confuses the nations, confuses the languages. And then God starts over with a man by the name of Abram. And God literally creates an ethnicity. He creates an ethnicity. How does God create an ethnicity? How does God create an ethnicity here? Well, Yeah, but how does he create an ethnicity? Was Tara a Jew? No. No. Tara was not a Jew. Who's the first Hebrew? Who's the first Hebrew? Who's the first Jew? Hebrew and Jew are the same thing. Who's the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham. Because of his DNA? No. No. Whose DNA did he have in him? Terah's. That's right. So whatever mixed Terah was, 
from the Tower of Babel. Abraham was of that mix. Until when? That's right. Until God designated him a Hebrew. Until God created an ethnicity right there from this new man and his wife. Is that, nod your head if you're following what I'm saying. Were there any Jews before Abraham? No. no. There were no Jews before Abraham. And suddenly we're going to create a people, a chosen race, a holy nation. So God, at the Tower of the Babel, abandons the nations. He just scatters them across the four winds, just abandons them, and puts all his focus on this one nation. And the purpose of this nation is to carry the offspring all the way to the New Testament. God will preserve this nation. God will make sure that this nation continues to exist all the way until they deliver whom? The offspring of the woman that's going to what? Crush the head. Do we know it's Jesus yet? No. no, we don't have a clue it's Jesus. It could have been any of these, whatever, but it's not. Okay? Perez shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, you can grab this Perez character and keep marching your way down, and you get to a guy by the name of Jesse. And you guys know Jesse? Who's Jesse? Father's David. That's right. And we get David. And then what son? Solomon. Solomon. And that's really bizarre because Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. Bathsheba, which is an illicit relationship. God doesn't designate the first son of that relationship as the Messiah. Who's the first son? Who? No, who's the first son of the relationship between David and Bathsheba? Oh, he dies. That's right. We don't know his name, do we? It's a judgment on God for on David for doing what? For sinning with her? Yes. But having consummated the relationship, they remain married, and God designates Solomon to be the one that carries the lineage all the way on. And if we turn to Matthew 1, turn to Matthew 1. In your Bible. The CSB Study Bible has some nice headings. It says from Abraham to David in verse number two. Do you have that kind of a heading? Does anyone have a heading? No. How about around verse number six? Does anyone have a heading around there? No. Okay. Well, look at these names. Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And then we have Perez and Hezron, Aram. And we go all the way down to Boaz and Obed and Jesse and King David in verse six. And then we have... David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. She doesn't even get her name in there. She's just referred to as Uriah's wife to remind us of the sin. Solomon, Asa, we keep going down to Hezekiah. Then we go after the Babylonian captivity in verse 12. 
Zerubbabel, and we just keep working our way down till we get to Jacob, father Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And now we're done. What do I mean we're done? Well, the offspring of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent has been born. Israel has served their purpose. They have carried the Messiah through, and he's now been delivered into the world. And every single genealogy in your Bible, including the one in Luke chapter 3 or 4, they all walk the dog, point the dog, to get you to the offspring of the woman. In other words, the story of the Old Testament is the story of how God brings the offspring of the woman all the way into the world through these series of generations. You get that or not? Okay. Paragraph 2. Um, Mr. Barry. Perez is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Born of Mary, Jesus is the one who, whom God chose to inflict the deadly blow to the head. Oh, excuse me, to the head of the serpent. Revelation 20 verse 2 makes it clear that the ancient that the ancient serpent of Genesis 3, the devil, Satan. Thus we understand that the offspring of the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan, and the offspring of Eve, Eve is Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of David, the tribe of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the descendant of Shem, the son of Noah, the descendant of Seth, the son of Eve. Okay, and you need to know those names. There are a lot more put in there, but we put the major names in there. Okay, paragraph number three, Jack. This promise called called the Proto-Evangelium because it is a proto, the first announcement of the good news. It is good news, it is good news, that a son of Eve would punish the serpent. Satan is the culpable agent for the fall of man. All right, are you all familiar with that word culpable? <laughs> Culpability. That's the person who's responsible. Okay, you were the one speeding. You were the one that caused the accident. You were the one drunk. You're the culpable agent. Keep reading. But both Adam and Eve made a choice to disobey God, which is why they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. The Greek word... Translated, transliterated. Transliterated. And you can just butcher that. Just work through it. Or, or skip it if it's embarrassing that you can't get it. Skip it. Yes, it's the it's the Greek word that we translate gospel. Keep reading. Start with is literally. Is literally good news translated gospel. Thus Genesis three fifteen is called the first announcement of the gospel. Okay, again, take that word gospel, G-O-S, and that's the good. P-E-L is the word news right there, and there we have the gospel. Okay, Addison on the cross. On the cross, Satan attempted to strike the head of Jesus, but in the end, it was merely a hip heel injury. Satan entered Judas Iscariot, Luke 22.3, and orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus. How could Jesus save anyone if he were dead? Early in Jesus' life, Satan attempted to kill baby Jesus through Herod, Matthew 2. Then, as an adult, Satan tempted Jesus to sin, but he, he resisted all temptations to sin and remained without sin. In both cases, Jesus won. The crucifixion was Satan's final attempt to defeat the Son of God. 
And were it not for Christ's resurrection on the third day, the promise looked as though Satan reversed it. But Christ defeated his arch enemy when he overcame death and rose from the grave. Christ paid for sin on the cross. The victory was secured. Christ, the Lamb of God, died for the world's sins. Jesus made it possible for all who put their faith in his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sins to be saved. 1 Corinthians 15. No longer would sin separate believers from God like sin separated Adam and Eve from fellowship with God. What Satan meant for the defeat of God's plan of salvation turned out to be his own defeat. He suffered a head injury. All right, let's talk about that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I want you to make it clear to you, brothers and sisters, the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, however you pronounce that Greek word. That's the same word right there. I preach to you, which you received, on which you take your stand, and by which you are being saved. Verse 2, if you hold fast to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is also known as Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to over 500, of which many are alive today, verse 7, appeared to James, and then to the apostles, verse 8, and last of all, Paul says to me, one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So those eight verses give us the essential elements of the gospel. So what are the essential elements of the gospel that we see in those eight verses? Um, starts in verse three. Yeah. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he then appeared to yeah. So, if I said to you, Jack, what are the three essential elements, three essential elements to communicate in the gospel? That Christ was buried, died, buried, and rose again. Yeah. And all that I would add on that died part, Jack, is that he died for what reason? Our sins. Our sins. Right. He did not die for his own sins. Okay, so this is the good news. This is the gospel message that we're talking about. Now, <clears throat> before you, you ladies um, came in, Jaden made it clear that I got something wrong. I thought it was a typo, but he disagrees with me on this theological point. So, Jaden, will you at least give me a chance to convince you? Do you have an open mind or are you closed-minded? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. yes, you have an open mind or you're closed-minded? 
All right. Okay, I'm getting ready to teach you some adult stuff. All right. Yep. Most seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth graders are not interested in learning this level of theology. My brain is going to hurt. Okay. In verse number 15 of Genesis chapter number three, there are two things that are promised. Number one, a head injury. And number two, a heel injury. Does everyone see that? All right. What was the head injury supposed to be from Satan's perspective? Death. The death of Christ. Remember, if I if I stomp all over your heel, if I take your heel, Lucas, and I just stomp all over it, I lay you down on the ground and I just start stomping on your heel, that will be painful. Can we agree with that? Yes. Yes. There's a strong probability that he might need incredible levels of reconstructive surgery in his heel. Can we agree with that? Yes. Yes. Is there a strong probability that he will die? No. No. It's Lucas. But what? It's Lucas, but he might miss and stomp on his chest, but, you know. How would you miss that part? Because he's so small. That's very rude. All right. Ryzen, I am just how God made me. Yes, I know. Nice. Wow. So a heel injury, you don't die from a heel injury. That's the point. A head injury is a death blow. It's significant. Do we get that? As you read this text... Do you think the injuries happen in conjunction with one another, or are they separated by time? As you read this text, do you have the impression that they happen together, or they're separated by time? Well, it doesn't really specify. It says, he shall bruise your head and me. He shall bru- you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise. No, I'm sorry. He shall bruise your head and he- you shall bruise his heel. But, you know, but so it seems like it is together, but. I'm not saying that it specifies that it does happen together. I'm saying as you read the text naturally, do you get the impression in the course of this fight that when someone gets a head injury the other one doesn't go unscathed he gets some type of an injury this is very important if you don't get this then i don't have any chance of getting you to understand the depth of what i'm saying so we have let's just use a timeline we have the offspring of the serpent living until this decisive moment and at this decisive moment there is an encounter there is a collision between the Satan and the Christ the Messiah the offspring of the woman and the Satan feels like seems like he is winning how does he feel like seems like he's winning Christ is dying, exactly. Christ is on a cross being crucified. This is exactly what the Satan wanted. 
the adversary. He wanted the second Adam, the last Adam to die. He has been envious of Adam from the very beginning, the very first Adam. He hates all Adams. He doesn't want Adams worshiping God. He wants Adams worshiping who? Him. Him. And so now he has the ultimate Adam on a cross and that Adam is dying. And it really feels like at this point that the Adam, the Christ, is getting what kind of injury? A head injury. Because he's dying. That's a body. That's a terrible body, all right? It's a stick figure, okay? All right? Wouldn't you be sad? He's dying. Right. And he's buried. Now he's buried. The head injury is what? Complete. It's finished. He's he's dead. He's in a grave. I think he's also sad because he doesn't have eyes. Victory has been secured until the first day of the week when a tomb is rolled back and a resurrected Jesus in a spiritual body proves to the world to all that will pay attention that he's alive and we move the head injury to what? to a heel injury why a heel injury? because it didn't hold him down for very long that's right was it an injury? yes clearly it was an injury it was held to be on that cross it was held before it was on that cross it started way before that what do you mean way before that? I'll tell you when it started, all the mental agony associated with it. Did Christ know that he was going to a cross? Yeah. Yes. Did he imagine every single time he saw someone on a cross in the city of Jerusalem being crucified by a Roman, that someday that's going to be me? Yeah. Probably not. How bad is it going to feel? Remember, there are things that Christ says that he doesn't know. So in other words, there is this ability or uh, distinction, that's a better word, between his humanity and his deity so that he experiences all of it in his humanity. He doesn't get a pass. The, in other words, the mental anguish is as real for Christ as it would be for any one of you in this room. So now, Jay, my point is that if we definitively say that Christ received a heel injury, then something had to have happened to the Satan. Now, there are people that disagree with me, and that's fine. And what they do is they kick the head injury into the future. In other words, in the course of this thing, Jesus got the heel injury and the Satan got away unscathed. Unscathed. Do you understand that word? Unscathed? Nothing. Someday he'll get it, but not yet. So what they do is they break the Genesis 3.15 promise and they separate it by time. But the Genesis 3.15 promise doesn't make sense separated by time. We get into a scuffle, you and I, Lucas, okay? 
because you're such a runt, as he says, I would get away unscathed. But if it was a full-on combative thing, it's very doubtful that there's nothing that happens to the other person. Like even bloody knuckles, if we're punching. Some form of injury at the same time. Now this goes to what you're going to argue with me about, and that's fine, because there's plenty that argue with me about this. What is the punishment to Satan? What is the head injury? What happened to Satan after the cross as opposed to before the cross? In other words, if we say, we'll use the purple marker to, to make some distinction, here is the power and impact of Satan before the cross, and here is the power and impact of Satan after the cross. Those two look pretty similar, two rectangles. It doesn't really look like anything happened to him. So what I'm arguing for in the paragraph we're getting ready to read in just a moment is that after the cross, Satan was bound in one thing. In one thing, and we'll, I'll show you that in just a minute. Not eliminated, not defeated, but there was a constraint that he had after the cross that he did not have before the cross. That's why people are not, there's no more demon possessed people. Well, I don't know that that's a true statement or not. Because I'll show you what I think the constraint is in the paragraph. Fifth paragraph. Although Satan is still the god of this world, he cannot keep humans from believing the gospel. His power to keep the nations deceived like a deceived Eve has been curtailed or restrained. Revelation 20, verse 3. Christ entered his world and bound him. He is bound. He is a bound, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I like to compare it to a mob boss. You guys know what a mob boss is? No? Do you know what a mob is? Yes. Okay, like a, 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 a criminal organization. And the boss of that criminal organization is the mob boss. Okay? And he has all kinds of people that work for him orchestrating criminal behavior. And the bigger the mob is, the more worldwide this organization is. Selling drugs, laundering money, prostitution rings, kidnapping people, um, car sales, uh, ripping off cars, auto sales, on and on. That's, that's all this criminal activity. So the mob boss gets arrested and he's imprisoned. But he's still able to communicate to the outside world through various means. For example, in the prison, he pays off a guard that smuggles a phone to him. So he offers a guard $5,000, okay? And the guard gives him a cell phone. Now with a cell phone, is he able to communicate with his organization outside of the prison? Only Yeah, we assume that he has electricity and a charging port. Let's just stay with the communication, okay? That's the idea behind this. So the mob boss is constrained in some fashion but does he still have the ability to impact things? Yes, that's the idea. All right, let's go back to our paragraph. 
He is bound, roaring lions, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. Jesus asked, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. His house, in this illustration, is the world. He's the God of this world. Jesus entered Satan's house, this earth, and for three years he plundered his goods. How did Jesus do that? How did he plunder his goods? By uh, saving souls. Saving souls. What else? Next time it says demon-possessed were set free. That's right. He's just everywhere he goes. Out, 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 out. He's exercising his sovereign authority by the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father in just owning Jerusalem. People that were blind can see. People that were deaf can hear. People that couldn't walk can now walk. Demon-possessed lunatics are now in their right mind. He's just owning the Satan. That's the idea. Those who were demon-possessed were set free. Those who lived in deception now believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Satan desired to sift Satan. Satan desired to sift Peter like wheat, but Christ prayed for Peter's faith not to fail, and it did not. Peter did not stay in a state of unbelief after Christ's death. Peter believed that Jesus rose from the grave and went on to preach to the saving of 3,000 souls in Acts 2. And today, each time a sinner turns to God in faith in the gospel of Jesus, Satan's goods are plundered and another soul is saved. So what I'm arguing for is that Satan, Satan's abilities to deceive the ethnicities has been constrained. Now, why is this so important? Why do we want his ability to deceive the nations to be constrained? Turn to Matthew 28. Turn to Matthew 28. Verse 18. Who's got it? Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, that's a very important statement. So this is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And from the Father, what has Jesus now received? All authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. And on earth. So does he have authority greater than Satan even on earth? Yes. Yes. All right. Verse number 19. Pepper. So therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right. So he now tells his disciples to go to all the nations, to go to all the ethnicities, and do what? Make disciples. Preach the gospel. Teach them to become followers of Christ. Baptize them and teach them everything I've commanded. All right, go to Revelation 20.
Are you there? Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now, the evangelical church, when I mean that, I mean Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, everybody does not agree on that verse. Does not agree on that verse. And the way they don't agree is, is that already happening now, or is that a future issue? And this is what Jane doesn't agree with. This is the very premise right here. Did this already happen and now is happening, or is it a future event? In other words, go back to my chart up here. Is Satan as free now as he was before the cross? That is to say, no injury to Satan. Nothing happened to him. Jesus got the heel injury. Satan is going to get a head injury someday in the future, but not yet. Or is Revelation chapter number 20, verse number 3, talking about a binding of Satan that occurred right here after the cross. So I'm arguing that he is presently bound in his ability to do one thing, just one thing. What is that one thing in verse three? To deceive the nations. That's right, to deceive the nations. In the Old Testament, Satan could deceive the nations. Entire ethnicities lived in deception. All wholly given over to idolatry given over to false gods, just everywhere. But now, now that Christ gave the church the mission to go into the what? Matthew 28, we just read it. All over the world. All over the what? Same Greek word. Nations. Don't miss that parallel. Matthew 28, go into the nations. Nod your head. Go into the nations. And I've already presented, kept the Satan from what? Being able to deceive them. So in other words, Christ got our biggest enemy to evangelize in the world out of the way so that we could evangelize the nations. So I'm saying, I'm arguing this morning that in prior to the cross, he had the power to deceive entire nations. After the cross, he lost the power to what? Deceive nations. So that we can plant churches where? Everywhere. Everywhere. That we can take the gospel into every nation, every ethnicity, because the arch enemy that keeps us from doing this has been bound and will be bound during this period of time in which we take the gospel forward, then at the end of this time, Satan will be released for a short period of time, and then after that, he will be constrained permanently in the lake of fire. Because you can see in Matthew 20, he's not in the lake of fire, he's in the abyss, like a holding cell. Not in the lake of fire, in the lake of fire, he's eliminated. The lake of fire is coming up in the next chapter. 
So does that would that mean that the lake of fire would be crushing the head, or the lake of fire would be the elimination of him? So I'm saying that the head injury is, is worse than the heel injury, and that he can no longer deceive the nations a power that he had before, and that he will ultimately be eliminated as a threat to the church. Because again, if you notice in Matthew 20, I mean, Luke, Revelation 20, it doesn't say he's helpless. It doesn't say he can't do anything. It says that he can't deceive what? The nations. So this is why I'm using like this constrained reign of terror. You don't normally put those two words together. A reign of terror that's constrained? Well, yeah, who's constraining it? Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So if God has elected that someone be saved, can Satan interfere with that? No, because God has ordained that it's going to happen. And the first demonstration of this was when God brought his son back from the grave and resurrected him. You thought it was a head injury? No, it wasn't. It was a heel injury. Now, I'm going to elevate my son to the position of all authorities given to him in heaven and earth, and you are going to be constrained until I'm done doing what I want to do on the earth. What, what do I mean by doing what I want to do on the earth? Saving the elect, planting churches, building the kingdom of God. All right, we're done.